Welcome to the Ferguson Library Podcast. In this episode, we bring you Andrew Morton, author of The Queen and other best-selling books about the British royal family, in conversation with Victoria Arbiter, who comments on the House of Windsor for CNN. This event took place on November 15, 2022, and Victoria Arbiter was introduced by Friends of the Ferguson Library board member, Mary Thies. Andrew Morton, as you know, is the author of the new book, The Queen. He studied history at the University of Sussex, England, with a focus on the aristocracy and the 1930s. Uh, Morton has written extensively on celebrity, including biographies of Tom Cruise, Angelina Jolie, and Madonna, as well as the British royal family. He has written best-selling biographies of the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Prince Andrew and Meghan Markle, and his probably most recognized book right now, especially if you've been watching the new season of The Crown, is his best-selling biography of Diana, Her True Story. We are de delighted that he is with us tonight. And interviewing him is Victoria Arbiter. Victoria is CNN's royal commentator. And she brings to her role a wealth of insider knowledge and expert analysis on the British royal family. She regularly contributes to Entertainment Tonight, Daily Mail TV, CTV in Canada, Channel 9 in Australia, and ITV in the UK. She is the author of Queen Elizabeth II, a biography published by the History Press, and she writes a royal blog for CNN. She's the daughter of a former press secretary of the Queen. Aunt Victoria spent the latter part of her teenage years living in Kensington Palace. I think she's truly an insider. So will you please welcome Andrew and Victoria. It is a huge privilege for me to be chatting to Andrew. My father, Dickie Arbiter, was working for Charles and Diana when Andrew's explosive book hit the bookshelves in 1992. Uh, so we've got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, I'm glad to say my dad has always described Andrew as one of the good guys. And tonight when I said I was coming, he said, oh, send in my very best. So we really are in incredible company. So uh, hopefully my questions are going to answer a lot of the questions you have. And if not, we'll certainly make, try and make time for a bit of a Q&A at the end. So please, if we could just put hands together once more for Andrew Morton. Um, well, Andrew, amazing to be here with you. I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed your book. You know, when you take on the life of someone as prolific as the Queen, some of these biographies can get a little heavy handed, but yours is just wonderful, engaging, insightful, and just a, a thoroughly exciting read. Obviously, this year is an extraordinary year for the royal family. The Queen marked her Platinum Jubilee in June and barely three months later, she tragically passed away. Where do you start on, on researching and beginning a book on the Queen? Well, you start at the beginning and, and also you start with your own experience. I mean, my the first time I met the Queen was in 1983 in San Diego. There were hurricanes, there were floods. Um, President Reagan had to abandon his ranch uh, and the, everything that could go wrong went wrong but the one thing 
that happened to me was that uh, we, I met the Queen on board the Royal Yacht Britannia, uh, and I was enchanted by this this boat, and I just wanted to read about it, and discovered to my horror that there were no there was no book, so I decided to write my first book. So I have the Queen to thank uh, for starting me off on my literary career. But that wasn't your first time in the presence of the Queen. You met her when you were quite a young boy. I was a boy scout. Dip, dip, dip. <laughs> and I remember standing on the side of the road in the, the, my hometown of Leeds, which is in the north of England. And the Queen and Prince Philip came by to open a one of these brutalist shopping centres. And it was a foggy day, a bit like tonight, actually. And I stood there proudly at the side of the road and... The Queen and Prince Philip went by in their illuminated Rolls Royce and they looked like two figures from outer space. And for most people, that's the way that, that you, you saw the royal family. They were, you know, distant, you know, uh, imperturbable figures, uh, rather like the, the White Cliffs of Dover, you know, impregnable, invincible uh, places that you never thought uh, thought you'd ever go. And so... I started my royal career in 1982. Um, I'd covered the Falklands conflict and I was asked by the editor of my newspaper to do the royals. And I was absolutely horrified. When Diane Charles married in 1981, I went on a squash course to, to a college so I could keep away from all the nonsense that was being written about them. And yet barely a year later, I found myself, because I'm six foot four, and can look over crowds. I was chosen to um, write about the royal family, knowing nothing much about them, apart from the fact that Prince Philip was spelt with one L. <laughs> the first job I had was chasing Prince Andrew and an actress called Ku Stark, Catherine Stark, ah. to the island of Mystique in the Caribbean. My friend, well, sorry, my colleague, uh, a photographer called Ken Lennox, he knew the, the, the head of PR at Pan Am, and he got us onto the Pan Am first class. So the flight was first class from London to Miami, Pan Am. They brought the caviar round. Remember, remember those days? They brought the caviar round. They carved the roast beef in front of you. I landed in Miami and made my way to Barbados and then hired a private plane to go to the island of Mustique because at that time, everybody thought, oh, Andrew and uh, Andrew and Coote have secretly married. And, and in those days, I mean, you know, this shows you how long ago it was. Prince Andrew was the playboy prince. He was the uh, world's number one royal pinup and the most eligible bachelor in the world. And to, to think that he skulked off with a, an American bride. Um, that was not the case eventually, but I have to say that week spent chasing Coo and Andrew around the island of Mystique was the most fun you could have with your clothes on or off. <laughs> you were there for some of the most turbulent times in the royal family's history. Did you admire her, respect her? Did you get past your feeling of this is all a lot of nonsense? No, you you learn to respect the Queen, and you, you you learn to see what a solid, stoic job she did, and and the, the, you you got occasional clues into bits of her personality. And I think being a biographer is essentially a a, a personality detective. You're looking for little clues that will kind of give you a sense of who the person is. 
I mean, let me just give you one that you probably all watched on TV. Prince Charles signing that scroll and he stinking pen that didn't work. Well, that gives you a little insight into somebody who is, you know, quite at times short tempered and not necessarily the uh, perfect man about town, town that he presents. The Queen, for her part, never gave any interviews. She, in 1992, there was a little bit of commentary to the documentary released to mark the 40th anniversary of her accession. But beyond that, we really don't know much about her personal likes and dislikes, her political leanings. She managed to adopt that rather neutral expression because she knew her every facial appearance would be interpreted. Um, she could be considered quite dour. And yet what I loved in the book, you talk about that sense of humour that people often don't credit her with. Yes, yeah, she, she had a, a sense of humour, I would say, as dry as, as, as her evening martinis. <laughs> I, mean, um, I mean, a couple of examples. Um, she, there was an author uh, drinking cocktails in the evening in the sitting room at Balmoral and moaning to Princess Margaret, he couldn't think of a title for his new book. And the Queen standing nearby gaily said, and I can't think of any reason to give you one. <laughs> so on another occasion, uh, um, the Queen was out walking and having a, a lunch and a picnic uh, with, with her a bodyguard. Now, the Queen likes to travel light, and uh, uh, and she's often mistaken for just an, an ordinary person. And on on this occasion, she's there with Dick Griffin, who's her, her bodyguard. And Dick tells the story of how two American had to be American hikers came up and passed the time of day. Didn't have a clue who they were talking to. Um, and they and they said and, and said to the queen, "Have you do you live here or, or do you come here on holiday?" And and the queen says, "Well, I've got a holiday home in the next valley, and I've been coming here for about eighty years." Oh, they said, um, eighty years." But have you ever met the queen? And and she says, she said, "No, but Dick here has." And 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 they focused their entire attention on Dick Griffin. They said to Dick. What's she like? What kind of person is she like? And, and Dick looks over at the Queen. She says, she's got a great sense of humour, but, but she can be a little bit grumpy. <laughs> anyway, before the Queen could do anything, the American hiker took out his camera and said to the Queen, would you mind taking a picture of me and this, this man? So they, take a, so they take a picture and off they go. And the Queen says to Dick Griffin afterwards, I'd love to be a fly on the wall when they when they they realise whose picture they've taken. Princess Margaret was uh, known for being quite highly strung, let's put it that way. She was uh, perhaps the last of the great princesses, uh, both in appearance and behaviour. Um, she was having a turn, let's put it that way. And uh, somebody called the Queen because they were concerned that she might harm herself. It's a fantastic story. And 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 the Queen said, what's she doing? She's She's refusing to go to bed. She's threatening to throw herself out of the window. And the Queen said, it's all right. 
her, her bedroom is on the ground floor. She won't, <laughs> she, she won't hurt herself. <laughs> but again, that's another insight. You see, these things are, are funny, but they give, and as anybody who's been to a therapist will say, you know, the funny family things often yield a deeper insight. And it showed you that the Queen, though concerned about, about Margaret, knew that she had all these histrionics. She was a bit of a drama queen, I have to say. And um, uh, the, the Queen, of, of course, is absolutely the opposite. You'd need an office the size of Macy's if you were going to try and refute all the inaccurate stories that are out there. And for many years, years and years, the Queen has been heavily castigated for seemingly banning Princess Margaret from marrying Peter Townsend. So I was particularly thrilled that you delve into that that story quite with with immense focus in your book, because that's actually not the case. No, there's that whole episode of The Crown where... Margaret turns on her sister and basically blames her for, for, for not being able to marry group captain Peter Townsend. Let me quickly remind you of the scenario. Um, the Queen becomes the Queen during that, before that, and then during that time, uh, Margaret's been having an affair with group captain Peter Townsend, who, who also uh, is married and then divorces. Uh, they decide they want to marry, but the, the church and the state are against divorce and we've only we've only just had the the whole saga of Edward VIII abdicating the throne to marry Wallace Simpson um so uh, Margaret sees uh, Elizabeth and it, and the relationship has is in a step change because Elizabeth is now queen so there's a there's a there's a certain uh, divide there uh, because the queen has to focus on not just her family, but also what does the state, what does the church want? Because she's the defender of the faith. And um, the first advice is that Margaret would have to give up her rights to the throne, her civil list. She'd probably have to go into exile. And uh, the queen, trying to keep Margaret on side, invites uh, group captain Peter, Peter Townsend to leave Britain for a year so that they can think about things and th let, th let things settle down and during that time you get a real insight into the Queen's personality she's someone who is very cautious and doesn't make decisions quickly and likes to wait on events uh, to the point which for, for some people is frustrating the Queen allows this relationship to continue sporadically but it's Margaret who breaks it off. It's not the Queen who uh, who forces her to leave that romance. And this myth about the Queen being hard-hearted towards her sister has endured, and it's really shifted the prism of, of focus on the Queen's personality to someone who, in reality, after looking through the papers in the National Records Office, was quite adamant that... Margaret make her own decisions about whether she, whether or not she married Group Captain Peter Townsend, not the government, not the church, not herself. And she was prepared to have the monarchy criticised and attacked for her sister's future happiness. Prince Philip is another one who's been heavily criticised and there's been all these stories about his rumoured eye for the ladies. Um, there was one quote that I wanted to share with all of you. Um, 
I thought this was wonderful. You know, Prince Philip, he was, for his part, the longest serving British consort in history. He was a decorated naval officer. He served with distinction during World War II. He was mentioned in dispatches. He was an extraordinary man who had led a very difficult life and he gave up so much in order to marry the Queen. And in my view, they were a perfect match. But there's one quote he wrote in a letter, and I, I can't believe you found this letter, uh, to his eventual wife in 1946. Um, I am sure I do not deserve all the good things which have happened to me, to have been spared in the war and seen victory, to have fallen in love completely and unreservedly makes all one's personal and even the world's troubles seem small and petty. Given he was seen as quite a brusque fellow, uh, he didn't hesitate to swear at photographers if he thought they were taking too long. Um, that was quite a touching quote. As a couple, they 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 did work very well. and. Um, the, the Queen's caution was matched by the Duke's progressive nature. I think he, he described their success due to her having an abundance of tolerance. <laughs> Which... And corgis that she could take for long walks, because yes. you always knew when she had a difficult decision or a confrontation, she'd take the dogs for a walk, and then, then she'd come back and take them for a walk again. Um, so just to avoid it, she was a, certainly in the early part of her reign, the Queen was very cautious. And who can blame her when you think, when you look back? Because she's got two children. She's got a husband who's frustrated because he's had to give up his, his uh, love of the sea in the Royal Navy, where he was widely expected to, to become one of the possible first lords of the Admiralty. Um, uh, a mother who was grieving, um, a sister who was on whiskey and barbiturates, no change there, um, <clears throat> and um, a tsunami of responsibility that threatened to overwhelm her. And it's in those days, there were very few female CEOs of companies. Mm -hmm. And here she was, the CEO of Great Britain, Inc., having to uh, do all the jobs of a, of a head of state, but also wanting to be a, a successful mother, wife and and so on and uh it, it, she couldn't squeeze that that quart into a pint pot and something had to give and it was her for for a time her family life and you know what and it's one of the th again part of being a a personality detective in a, in a sense you think to yourself how much must, must she have felt when the government said okay, you go away for six months to Australia and New Zealand after the coronation to see the, to see uh, the, the, your, um, uh, the places where you're head of state. And um, you, they didn't think about the fact that she was a mother and a wife, uh, but she went, but she went uncomplainingly because there wasn't that culture as there is now. I mean, I mean, Meghan Markle was away for 11 days and complained about it. I mean, and it made me smile because the Queen, stoical, accepted it. And, and, and it shows you it was a different time. And, and different in terms of the expectation as well, being the Queen. By 1960, the Queen was coping with the job. It, and it, it, because initially it was overwhelming. She was... She she knew how how it went. She she was making Christmas broadcasts without being terrified, as she was in the early days. She was uh, navigating her time 
with prime ministers. She was, uh, she's shown herself rather like one of these colonial officers in the days when Britain had an empire and they lived in some far-flung province of India and they administered that territory. Very competent, very quick uh, and uh, very loyal. She was on top of the job. She'd made it her own. The trip she made to Ghana um, and Ghana looked to be moving into the Soviet sphere of influence and, and this was during the Cold War. Several bombs had gone off in the in the capital Accra and the Prime Minister Macmillan was very reticent to send her. And she said, I'm, yes, I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I don't take, I don't say this lightly, but I should go because I'm also the head of the Commonwealth. And she insisted on going, even though Winston Churchill, who adored her um, and was almost, was then in his last years, he, he pleaded with her not to go, but she went and um, and it was a tremendous success. She danced with the, the president um, and, and you know, it was a great uh, coup as, as far as uh, diplomacy was concerned and a great example of soft diplomacy because Ghana then became, became uh, part of the Commonwealth. the 1990s of course a famously tricky period for the family um she copped most of the blame because as head of the institution the buck was seen to rest with her how do you think she handled it she was one who didn't like confrontation well she didn't like confrontation and she and she and one and it, it's worth going back to um, the queen when she was princess elizabeth one of her first speeches she made was to the mothers union about the the efficacy of marriage and of married life. So she was, you know, dead against divorce personally, as too was the Queen Mother, who uh, I'll just like to add this, was very much a backseat driver when it came to the monarchy. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> uh, but the Queen did have some difficult times, and it is the D word, divorce, which has really characterised the, the, the reign. And when you think that Edward VIII gave up the throne to marry a twice-divorced American with two husbands living. That's Wallace Simpson. And what, less than a century later, we have King Charles III marrying and bringing to the throne his, his former mistress. It shows you how the, the world and, the, the, and certainly the, the religious world and, and certainly the, the, the social world has changed in, in Britain. And... Yes, the Queen did what was seen as responsible for, for much of that. And, you know, some of her more acerbic uh, observers said that if she spent more time uh, on her children and less time with her dogs and horses, maybe the marriages would have been better. I actually disagree with that. I think that the, the philosophy, the family philosophy of the Queen and Prince Philip was that the children are going to be buffeted by all kinds of things. They've got to make their own way as individuals um, finding a, a role as in, in charities um, and also finding a mate. And it's interesting, isn't it, that, that the only aristocrat who married into the royal family during the Queen's reign 
was Lady Diana Spencer. Everybody else was a commoner, and and the, and they they uh, fitted in uh, with varying degrees of success. For the most part, when in trouble, the Queen did, as you mentioned before, defer to tradition. But sticking to tradition, that's what she lent on heavily in the week following the death of Diana, the flag over Buckingham Palace being one major sticking point. I was incredibly moved, actually, with the the chapter you dedicate to that particular week. The Queen, of course, tucked away at Balmoral. In my view, it was the only time in her entire reign where she chose family over duty, uh, her instinct being to protect the boys at all costs. So perhaps didn't fully understand exactly what was happening in London, but it was one such instance where she understood, it seems, that tradition needed to change. Yes, I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Balmoral. It is situated on the, situated on the River Dee. It's a beautiful, I don't know, have you ever been there? It's a beautiful part of the world. There are, there are uh, a, a, a confectioners will have a by appointment sign outside. The butcher's got a by appointment sign outside. It's like a little Ruritanian kingdom. You expect to see horses and carts and Queen Victoria in her bonnet walking around. Uh, and it's like going back, back in time. So when Diana died, the Queen and the royal fa- rest of the royal family were at Balmoral. Now, they were always a, a day, sometimes two days, behind the thinking in London. And I can quite understand that, because you are in a different century, let alone a different day, in, in Balmoral. And the Queen initially, along with the Spencer family, thought that the funeral should be a, a, a private one, that the Spencers should organise it. Diana was no longer no longer an HRH. She'd relinquished her title. The Queen hadn't seen her for months. Other members of the royal family hadn't seen her for years. As far as they were concerned, she was she was now uh, a, a, an ordinary person, and that the fam- and that the the the, the uh, funeral should be organised by the Spencer family. Well, when the convoy came along the A40, this dual carriageway from RAF Northolt into central London and all the people were standing at the side of the road they realized pretty sharpish that they had to change their their view because people wouldn't tolerate a private ceremony and but the queen took an awful lot of persuading to bring to, to put the union flag at half staff as as you mentioned and people interpreted that as callousness but we are I think that it's seeping out now through the witness, by the way, of William and Harry, who both uh, at different times talked about how being at Balmoral was a great, it nourished them at a difficult, almost impossible time, horrendous time. The one thing I think the Queen could have done would have been to have made a broadcast to the nation from Balmoral, from her study at Balmoral, and and said, I'm staying here for the sake of the boys and do a modified version of the speech that she eventually gave at Buckingham Palace. But there was something more profound going on. And again, personality detective, you you try and look beyond the immediate horizon. It was as if the Queen was seen as a universal mother, that uh, she was a Jungian archetype, that people wanted their mum to put, figuratively speaking, put their her arm around them all. 
and people were grieving and angry that she wasn't there to help them, to console them. And when she eventually came down and eventually met with some of the people and gave that famous speech from the Chinese room at Buckingham Palace, the temperature immediately dropped. People stopped being angry. And it was as though mum had come home. Most of the people watching Diana's funeral didn't know her terribly well, but you knew her incredibly well. And in 1992, Diana, her true story really electrified the world in terms of royal biographies. I would say you single-handedly changed how the royal family is covered. How did that book come about? I was a royal reporter. It was my beat. I went um, on the first trip that Diana made to Australia in 1983. I met her in in Italy, in America, various other tours, and uh, my conversations with with her were usually light, bright, and trite, and um, and then we got on fine. And the fact that I'm six foot four, she's five foot ten, and I looked down on her, she and she couldn't look down on me like as she did with her husband. It's it's a long story, but I got to know some of Diana's circle and. They knew that I was sympathetic to Diana. I didn't know that about bulimia. I didn't know about Camilla. I, was, I believed, like everybody else, in the fairy tale that Charles and Diana had got married. They were a fairy tale couple. Um, they'd had a couple of children, great boys, and the, the, their marriage was had, their, had its ups and downs, and that was about it. And then I was decided to write a biography about Diana. One hadn't been written for ten years or so, and. Uh, Diana got to hear about this and knew me and knew the, the, the friend that she was talking to, Dr. James Colthurst, and said, does Andrew want an interview? Well, I mean, you could not. You, <laughs> nah. Nah. Nah forget, nah. forget it, love. We don't, do you want, no, we don't want an interview. I mean, you've never given an interview the most famous princess in the world. No. She said about 600 words in public and most of those were in Welsh and so I got this interview she recorded this interview well I thought it would be about her charity work and her humanitarian mission and all that kind of stuff James said to me I've got this tape you might want to listen to it and so I I first listened to this initial tape that Diane had made uh, in a working man's cafe in a place called North Rislip which is you know, a pretty anonymous part of North London. And all around me, all these workmen were eating their eggs and bacon and fried sausage and fried bread, good high cholesterol stuff. And I put these headphones on and turned on the tape recorder. And it was, and I kid you not, it was like entering another world, like going to a different universe. She was talking about an eating disorder called bulimia. I'd never heard of it. Talking about a woman called Camilla, never heard of her. Talking about all kinds of things to do with the men in grey. And it, and it was quite shocking because I, as I've said, I still believed 
in the fairy tale. I might have been a bit cynical about it, but still believed in it. And I walked back home, like, oh, sorry, I walked to the tube, to the subway, in like a daze, and I and um, kept well clear from from the edge of the of the platform, because it was almost like a modern day a, a royal version version of all the president's men. From then on, and then the next stage, I contacted my publisher, an American called Michael O'Mara. And he said, look, if Dinah's so happy, how come she's always smiling? And it was my job to convince the world that she wasn't always smiling. And so that job took the best part of 18 months because <clears throat> it wasn't just about um, uh, recording tapes. It was about interviewing Dinah's friends, her family, Earl Spencer, for example, um, her great school friends like Carolyn Bartholomew, and, and endorsing what Diana had to say about her unhappy life inside the royal family. You have sold five million copies worldwide. The public were just absolutely flabbergasted. The Archbishop of Canterbury came out and said, no, this isn't true. The chairman of the Press Complaints Commission said, no, this isn't true. You were absolutely raked over the coals. Given the response, was there any sense that she had regretted being quite so open? Or do you think she was grateful for the platform? Do you know, Victoria, she never once regretted a single thing. I think that in many respects, it liber the book liberated Diana. It did exactly what it said on the tin. It was her story, and it, it took her out of what she would call the Dark Ages into becoming this woman who became an international humanitarian with her own agenda, with her own perspective. She wasn't in, in an unhappy marriage any longer. Um, Yes, she made a lot of mistakes, but she she survived and she went forward. And, and you know, you only have to look at the pictures of Mario Testino that Mario Testino took. Those wonderfully glamorous, sexy pictures that she looked like a real woman in full, a woman who'd found her position. If you enjoyed this talk, an unedited version, complete with Q&A, is available on the library's YouTube channel. Books by Andrew Morton are available at the Ferguson Library and at bookstores throughout the colonies. Thanks for listening.